So today we are in Luke. Um, we're in Luke chapter 19, verses 1, 11 through 48. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be some in seats somewhere in the vicinity. Um, you can grab one of those. And if you don't have a Bible, feel free to take that home. The passage today um, shows us Jesus as a king. Um, and I love that we sang uh, the song Ancient of Days, um, really going all the way up to um, God's kingship over the universe. Um, we're seeing Jesus as the king of Israel, right? Um, but not just Israel, as we know how the story continues on. And we all want a king, right? We all want to live in a good kingdom. Um, I know, you know, we're all Americans, and um, that's great. You know, we got out of that whole business of kings a long time ago. Um, but as nice as democracy is, and I like it, um, we still need a king. We still look for a king. You know, why else, why else would we spend such a disproportionate amount of time uh, and our political attention on the presidential elections in specific, right? Why do, we, why do we champion our candidates as saviors or condemn our presidents as responsible for everything that's wrong? It's because good kingship, good leadership is something that we have a deep desire for deep in our bones. Right, we long for someone to, to rise up and bring order and peace to our land, our country, our world. And short of kind of a, a, a intense, almost satanic pride, we ourselves don't want to be at the top of that hierarchy, right, of the universe, ruling the universe, right? We want things to be right, and if we know ourselves, we recognize that we as individuals are not fit to make everything right, to rule in the perfect wisdom, the perfect justice, the perfect mercy that we look for in a king. And in, in the Bible, we're told that there is such a king. We sang about that king. Um, God's word comes to us and says that, though it might not seem like it, things are not out of control. Right? The world is not ultimately lawless and leader, leaderless. They won't, things won't end the way that they are now. The king will return, and things will be made right. And so we see um, this kingship at the forefront in the passage today, right? All the anticipation of really all of history, it comes to a point in Jerusalem, or um, it rather comes to an explosion in Jerusalem as he enters as king, um, throwing gasoline on the embers of his ministry and the, really the widespread messianic expectation that was all around during this first century in Israel. But as we see things unfolding through this passage and the following passage, we need to be careful because this king is not quite like other kings. And his kingdom is coming in ways that challenged the people then and probably in some ways challenges us today. So let's read the passage and then we will, we will dig into this story of this king who is coming and who is coming again. Look at verse 11 and we'll read through this. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. 
When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit, and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit, and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put the money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, Take the mina from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has ten minas. I tell you that everyone who has more, to everyone who has more, will, who, sorry, to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near the Beth, to Bethphage at Beth, and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear down to the ground you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you, because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words." So first we see here, um, Jesus ends his journey to Jerusalem. He's been on this long journey since chapter 9 with a parable that forecasts what's coming up. All right, this, is, this is the final teaching before the climax of the gospel. And there are three main characters in this opening parable of the ten minas. There's the nobleman prince who's going to be crowned king. There's the citizens of the kingdom who do not want him to be their king. And then there's the servants of the king who take care of his resources while they wait for the king's reign to be realized 
in, in, on the ground. And when the king returns, there's a great judgment. There's an evaluation of the faithfulness of his servants and the rebellion of his citizens. Now, I'm going to go, I'm going to do a quick interpretation sidebar here uh, because it's going to be helpful to understand what Jesus is talking about in some of, these, some of the verses in this passage, and especially as we come up on a couple chapters uh, further from, from now. So, um, in most of Jesus' statements about coming judgment, the main focus on, is on the judgment that happens in the year 70 AD. Right? That's not the only focus, but that is the main focus. Um, and as with other biblical events that we read about, there is often a foreshadowing of a greater f- fulfillment in the future. Right? With, with judgment prophecies um, at, the end, at the end of history when Christ returns. So God is he's dealing with his people, Israel, um, leading to the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem. And that, that event um, has a prophetic force in illustrating and anticipating the same kind of visitation and judgment on the whole world. So what God does in and through Israel, it, is, it, it gives us this pattern that's carried out in the world more broadly. And where this helps us read the Bible um, is that when Jesus is talking about future events, we, we don't make the mistake of putting those all entirely into the future, some thousands of years after he's talking. Um, nor do we make his statements only relevant and limited to the events that are about to happen 40 years from when Jesus is talking. Right? And that, this is going to help, if you keep that in mind, this is going to help you make sense of a lot of Jesus' statements um, and how they're relevant to the audience at his time, while it also recognizes that this history is building on itself and using these patterns of fulfillment into the future. Right? Um, so if you've not heard of this principle of understanding um, how to interpret these historical events, um, there's a the fancy word for it, it's called typology, right? Um, and we're, we're usually much more co- comfortable doing this backwards from the New Testament back to the Old, because in the New Testament you kind of get the cheat codes and answer keys when you're reading it. Um, but, but the New Testament also asks us to do it forwards too. All right, so we, we have to learn to read the New Testament in this way so that we're honestly dealing with the things that you read Jesus saying, um, knowing how that's going to hit his hearers that he's talking to, um, but also shows us how we can faithfully apply that to, our, to things that are still future to us. Um, so if that's a little confusing, totally understandable, um, but I, uh, I don't, I'm not going to take time to go into that more and illustrate that, but I do have a link in your study notes um, that is to an article that's really helpful in outlining this principle and showing you how this happens in, with different passages in the Bible. Um, so, uh, and hopefully this will help as we come up to chapter 21, where Jesus is talking about the destruction of the temple, the fall of Jerusalem, um, and how, that, how we can understand that to be relevant to us today. Um, so, okay, hopefully with that in mind, um, what I'm going to say going forward is going to make sense in how we can be focusing on the way this is fulfilled in the destruction of Israel, while also understanding that it's very relevant to us today um, and as we await for Jesus' return. Okay, so in this parable, um, Jesus is warning Israel that, about what's going to happen very, very soon. And as he gets close to Israel, he tells this parable about what's about to go down. Um, and primarily he wants to understand his disciples that the kingdom is not going to appear immediately, right? That's what we're told, Luke tells us prompts this telling of the parable. 
um, at least not in its fullness in the way that they expected it to come. The leadership of Israel is going to be given another chance to accept Jesus as their Messiah and as their king through the ministry of the apostles and the witness of the church. In other words, through the testimony of the Holy Spirit. This is what we see in Acts. Now, if the Jewish people, um, on the whole, continue to oppose Jesus' reign, they'll be blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and that will lead to their destruction. And so in a warning to those um, who claim to be Christians after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus says that his servants are going to be held accountable for what they do with what God has given them. Right? Some are going to reveal by their actions that their outward show of following Jesus actually covered over a deep unbelief and rejection of Jesus. And so in this parable, the wicked servant says, um, basically, I didn't want to serve you because I knew that you would reap what you didn't sow. Right? You take the profits that I earned with my hard work, and I was afraid that the profit would be of no profit to me. So basically, this is basically saying, I didn't want to work for your glory. I wanted glory for myself. And if what I do is for the king and not for my personal gain, I'd rather not do anything. And then the king says, well, you've condemned yourself with your own words. And so he responds in verse 26, everyone who has, to, to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. And this same principle and pattern applies to us today. Right? As God's servants, we will be held accountable for what we do with what God gives us. Right? Each of us has our minas. Um, and we wait for the, we're, we're waiting for the kingdom. But what will we do with them, knowing that whatever the results, when we are faithful with what we have, what little we have, will be disproportionately rewarded when Jesus returns. So Amina was about three months average wages, so let's say about $10,000 today. The servant does business, he turns $10,000 into $100,000. The first servant does, pretty good, right? But you see how disproportionate it is when Jesus rewards him with authority over 10 cities, right? The servant makes a $90,000 profit, and then Jesus basically makes him governor of California, something, something like that. But the key here is this, we're still waiting for the fullness of the kingdom, and in the meantime, meantime, we're stewards of the outposts of that kingdom, waiting for our king. So the question is, how are you going to take care of what is not yours? Your resources, your life, your time. Um, we, we belong to the king, but this is a daily question you can ask. Whose kingdom am I building? Whose kingdom am I building? So Luke then takes us to see this king revealed. In the triumphal entry, entry, we see why Jesus was so concerned throughout his ministry with pumping the brakes on kind of uh, these zealous assumptions about what was going to happen. And he, he's warned the disciples several times now, three times, I'm going there and I'm going to die. Um, he's telling people who he heals, don't tell anyone about this. <laughs> it's not because he doesn't want the gospel to go out, but once people realize what's happening, it's, it's just going to roll from there. But here he enters Jerusalem basically with a bright neon sign that says, I'm the Messiah, I'm the King of Israel, and I'm returning to my kingdom. Jesus here, he, he very carefully and intentionally arranges all the details to reveal his identity and mission super clearly. So thus far, as I said, um, 
Jesus has not tried to cause too much disturbance because it wasn't yet his hour yet, as he says. It wasn't yet time for him to die. But now it's time. So Jesus orchestrates these events to show who he is and the authority that he has. And that's going to make the Jerusalem leadership angry enough that they'll finally hatch their plot to kill him. So there's, there's a lot packed into Jesus' actions here and how the crowd responds to them. But I want to highlight a few details that show us what Jesus is up to here. There's the location, there's the donkeys, donkey, and there's the cloaks. Um, so first, the location. Uh, in 28, Luke writes, When he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethany and Bethphage, at the Mount, of Olive, at the Mount that is called Olivet, he sent out two of the disciples. So we looked a little bit at the route that Jesus had taken to get to Jerusalem last week. Um, but Jesus is following what was a typical route of pilgrims that were coming to celebrate Passover. So across the Jordan, uh, past Jericho, and then ascending to, up to the Mount of Olives. Now Jericho, um, I didn't know this before I studied for this passage, Jericho is the lowest city in the world. It's 846 feet below sea level. I mean, it's just north of where the Dead Sea is, which is the, literally the lowest point on planet Earth, on land. So Jesus, um, you see the kind of picture here, sort of. This is kind of in the background, but it's cool. Jesus is hiking up from the depths of the earth's surface up to the Mount of Olives, right? And the Mount of Olives is east of the city of Jerusalem. Um, it's higher than the, the mountain where the temple is, the Temple Mount. Um, and in between, there's a, there's a deep valley, a narrow valley. And the road he takes, it goes down the Mount of Olives, and then it approaches the city gate. Now, the key um, significance of this um, is that this pathway, it reverses the path of King David's departure from Jerusalem when his son, Absalom, stages a rebellion to take the kingdom over from him. So Jesus, what he's doing is he's, he's tracing David's steps in reverse. And that's where the second detail, the donkey, comes in. So donkeys or mules, they're consistently associated with kings, with royalty in the Old Testament. You can maybe like Get, on, get online and do a search of donkeys or mules and find all the donkey mule passages um, and see some of those connections. Um, but there are a few that are most important for what Jesus is doing here. Right? When David flees from Absalom on this path up the Mount of Olives, he's greeted by a man who gives him two donkeys loaded up with provisions because he's basically David's going into exile. Um, so he gives him some food um, as he goes out into the wilderness. And even more to the point... Um, when David passes on his kingdom to his son Solomon, he makes a point to sit Solomon on his own mule and have him ride into the city. This is a sign of kingship. So with these details together, um, which Jesus, as you can see, the, the text goes in detail to show that Jesus is very careful to make sure this happens. Um, these details are a way of basically shouting to anybody who has any familiarity with the Old Testament at Jesus' time, I am the son of David, right? I'm your king. I'm the anointed king that you have been waiting for throughout your whole history as a people. I'm here, right? My kingdom will have no end. And now you can see why Herod wanted to kill him, right? This is a big deal. And this is why um, Luke doesn't explicitly reference this, but other gospel writers mention this as a fulfillment of a prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9. And the prophecy says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of the donkey. 
And around this prophecy in Zechariah, there's all these verses talking about Israel's enemies being removed and bringing a kingdom that covers the whole world and bringing justice and prosperity to the land. So salvation is coming. It's finally happening. But this king is humble. He's mounted on a donkey, on a donkey's colt. And this is a clue that something surprising is going to happen over these next chapters in the rest of Jesus' ministry. All right, Jesus does not come in on a horse or in a chariot. Those are war mounts, right? You don't ride a donkey into battle, right? All right, well, I wouldn't recommend it. Um, he, he isn't coming with an army to storm the city. He's coming with an animal that signals peace, that signals humility. So how can a king like this claim a hostile throne, though? A throne that, um, that hostile throne itself is underneath uh, the foot of the pagan emperor. Well, Jesus had repeatedly told the disciples that he was going to Jerusalem to die. And they didn't understand it. But somehow this humble king is going to bring together God's mercy and God's justice. Somehow... He's going to tie together all of these prophecies of the suffering servant who dies for his people's sin and of the righteous judge who will remove evil and judge evildoers. And this brings in the third detail, um, the spreading of the cloaks on the road. Um, In verse 36, as he's riding in, people are tossing their cloaks, tossing their clothing onto the road. Not all their clothing, but outer garments. So on one level, this would have been just a symbol of submission to this king, right? Laying down your clothing, it represents laying down your own self in submission to the king. Um, Clothing, especially in other times and in other places even today, has a much more uh, stronger uh, function of representing yourself, Um, right? Who you were, what your job was, what your calling was. Um, It wasn't just sort of like my unique fashion choices, It was like you could tell something about a person, uh, what their station in life was, what they did for a living by what they wore. So the best way to think about this is um, think of maybe a a judge that's coming and he takes off his judge's robes and he puts them on the ground in front of Jesus. So right, myself, my job, my skills, my history, my purpose is at the king's feet. That's the image here. But there's another layer here. There's only one place in scripture that records people laying down their cloaks like this. And it's in a passage in 2 Kings chapter 9. um, And it speaks of this guy named King Jehu's anointing as king. Um, This is in the long line of Israel's kings, uh, which is fascinating. Um, It's exciting, bloody. Um, But at Jehu's time, the kingdoms of Israel and the kingdom of Judah They're a total mess. They're shot through with immorality and corruption and idolatry and bloodshed. It's a very dark, it's a very evil time in both of those kingdoms. Um, And that evil is threatening to initiate divine judgment that would wipe out both kingdoms. And so Elisha, the prophet, one of the great prophets, he commissions uh, a lower prophet to go and anoint this man named Jehu to be king over Israel and oppose the current king. And God says this through the prophet, I anoint you king over the people of the Lord, over Israel. And you shall strike down the house of Ahab, your master, so that I may avenge on Jezebel the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord. So Jehu goes out and tells the people, hey, I didn't make this up. This guy came and told me to do this. And then um, they all um, 
they all respond in this way. In haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under the steps, under him on the steps. And they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. So Jehu, um, if you read the rest of the story, it's, it's uh, one of the more gruesome stories in the Old Testament. But he goes on to essentially bring the wrath of God. Um, he assassinates the king of Israel and the king of Judah and, and Jezebel, the prophet killer. He then enters the temple of Baal, which is basically this demon god of Canaan that Israel had started worshiping. And he tears it to the ground, kills all the priests, and he, and he completely wipes out the Baal worship in Israel. So the laying down of garments in this story, it's a, it's a I'll use an internet term here, it's a hyperlink to this story um, and it gives a very ominous backdrop for Jesus' coming entrance into the temple. Um, so the people spread their cloaks before Jesus, and this signals a new Jehu has come to town. Right? So it's interesting. You have this humble king mounted on a donkey, bringing peace. And then you have um, this Jehu story in the background. Right? And the people rejoice. So the people, the people get this. Right, the whole crowd starts singing Psalm 118. Um, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. He's here. Justice is here. Peace is going to come. The kingdom is here. And you can see why the Pharisees are shocked. They say to Jesus, rebuke your disciples. Who do you think you are? Right, don't you see what they're doing and what they're saying? Surely you don't mean for these people to think they're anything more than just a, another prophet, another teacher. Tell them to stop. And Jesus says, I'm not going to rebuke a single thing that they're saying or doing. Because even if I told them to be silent, creation itself would speak. This is a Jesus who is not hiding anymore. He's done avoiding conflict. He's not going to, you know, as he had done before, kind of withdraw to obscure villages up in Galilee when things start to escalate. He's not going to tell people he heals to be quiet and tell no one. He's ready to be seen as a king. And the people open their eyes, and they see him for who he is. Kind of like Frodo does when the fellowship is traveling down this river near the end of the second book of The Lord of the Rings. I warned you about this because of the title of this sermon, is The Return of the King. So bear with me. Maybe uh, if you need to, you can make your grocery list for the next um, 60 seconds. So Aragorn um, is one of the main characters. That he's in the true line of kings, but he spent years of his life far away to the north of the kingdom, and he's kind of managing what seem like kind of unimportant small tasks under the pseudonym of Strider. He's, he's in worn-out traveler's clothing. He's probably dirty, unassuming. Like Jesus, there's nothing in his appearance that would be desirable. For most of his life, he doesn't appear to be a king at all, although there are some hints. And then partway through the story, Strider joins with Frodo to help him on his journey to destroy the ring. Now, he seems unimpressive to, uh, and, and maybe kind of rough, maybe threatening to Frodo and his hobbit friends. Not very appealing. But he's helpful. You know, Gandalf recommended him, so they agree to travel on, with him on their quest. And there's many ups and downs, um, including right before the part I'm going to read, uh, a whitewater rafting orc fight. You know, little tidbits for if you haven't read the books. Um, but they're canoeing down this river, and they're finally entering the realm of Aragorn's rightful kingdom. Right? They approach the gate to his kingdom, 
which is marked by these colossal statues of these two past kings that are so glorious and so massive that it inspires fear. They're these dark statues framing the swift and dark water. And Frodo says, what a place, what a horrible place. Just let me get out of this boat and I'll never wet my toes in a puddle again, let alone a river. Aragorn answers, fear not, said a strange voice behind him. Frodo turned and saw Strider, and yet not Strider, for the weather-worn ranger was no longer there. In the stern sat Aragorn, son of Arathorn, proud and erect, guiding the boat with skillful strokes. His hood was cast back and his dark hair blowing in the wind. A light was in his eyes, a king returning from exile to his own land. All of a sudden, Frodo sees Aragorn, as though for the first time, for who he really is. In this passage in Luke, and for some of us, these passages in The Lord of the Rings, um, it stirs up in us this deep longing for something we want, for something we've been looking for, the king. Right? We want to see the king return. We want this world to be a good kingdom ruled by a good king. This, this is the kind of unveiling that happens when Jesus rides into Jerusalem, rides into his kingdom. He's no longer hiding, and he's no longer avoiding conflict. Um, he's ready to intentionally provoke conflict in the most offensive way that he could, um, without sinning, obviously. So he heads right to the temple. This is the heart of God's presence in Israel. In verse 45, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they could not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. So he comes into the temple, and he starts rearranging the furniture like he owns the place. Um, and that's exactly what he's saying. This is my father's house. This is my house. And you've been hiding in here long enough. And the language here of driving out the sellers um, is the same language that we saw earlier in the, in the exorcisms that Jesus performs. So like in Jehu's time, Israel's become demon-possessed. Right? Um, only the demons here are in the heart of God's own temple. So Jesus quotes here Jeremiah 7.11, um, this language of the den of robbers. And, and hundreds of years back, Jeremiah had denounced Israel's hypocritical and presumptive worship and prophesied the destruction of the first temple that then got rebuilt into the temple that Jesus is in. Um, if you want, you can turn with me. I'm just going to read a few verses from that prophecy in Jeremiah because um, as with any Old Testament citations in the Bible, when, when the Old Testament is cited, it assumes that you know the rest of the context, and it's, it's basically bringing up that whole section, not just the specific verse. So if you look in Jeremiah chapter 7, this is a prophecy from Jeremiah. The word of the Lord, or the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand in the gate of the Lord's house, and proclaim there this word, and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place, 
in the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? And he goes on. Um, you read the rest later. But Jesus is invoking this entire prophetic critique that Jeremiah levels at the people hundreds of years earlier. The leaders of Israel, as we've seen going through Luke, they were, they were evil. They were greedy. They were proud, compromising, murderous, abusive. And they knew it. But they, like the people of Jeremiah's day, they would run from their sinning back to the temple. Jesus says, like, and Jeremiah says, like robbers returning to their hideout. And then cry out, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Um, as if it were some kind of magical formula that would excuse them from what they were doing. The place of God's presence, the place where he had given mercy, forgiveness for sins, was used to just dismiss their sins and to comfort them into thinking that judgment would surely never come. All right, we've got the temple. Look who we are. God's clearly blessed us. He wouldn't judge us. And Jeremiah and Jesus say, that's not how it works. Judgment begins with the household of God. Change your ways, or this building will be torn down stone by stone. Now, the church and we as Christians are not immune to this kind of thinking. We have our own phrases, maybe, that we chant um, that cover over or distract from our own issues that we need to examine. What might those be? Well, ultimately, you have to think about that for yourself. Um, But let me give a famous example. I'm not going to name names, but... A pretty influential pastor um, was, was challenged um, in the recent past on his doctrinal faithfulness by others in his denomination. And then during their convention, um, he was given the mic to basically defend himself. And what he said was essentially an extended brag, an extended boast about his size and power and influence. Some of the things he said were, um, do you know how many churches I planted? I was mentored by Billy Graham. I preached in over 100 crusades before I was 20. I baptized over 600,000 people. I trained over 1.1 million pastors, more than all the seminaries combined. In other words, you dare criticize me? Do you know who I am? The temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. What is that for you? What is that for us? It's easy to think of rich, you know, powerful, influential pastors who use their ministry influence as a shield for criticism, sometimes as a shield for really horrible things. But what is that for us? Do we, do we dare ask that question, right? Do we shout, grace, 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 and then return to stubborn disobedience? Do we shout, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, but then neglect areas where we need to change, where we need to grow? Judgment begins with the household of God. We're stewards, we're servants, we've been given our minas to use for God's glory. What are we going to do with them? What are you going to do with them? Now, these are, these are harsh words. Um, Jesus has told a, a really severe parable, and he's about to go on and drive this point home next week in another parable he'll tell. Um, if you, you know, there's a genre of movies that are kind of like the dad revenge movies. 
you know? Like if you've seen Taken or Man on Fire or movies like this where basically some great injustice happens and then this guy, sometimes the dad or not, um, basically goes on like a murderous rampage to bring justice to all the people. Um, now, I'm not gonna necessarily defend everything that happens in those movies, but if you're like me, when those plots kind of stir something up in you, right? Um, now you have maybe three options. One is you can kind of um, go all in and be like, yeah, like, you know, kill him. Um, just totally abandon yourself to the vengeance. Another is you can kind of totally repress that and say, no, we shouldn't, we shouldn't think about that. We shouldn't desire that in any way. That's completely wrong. Another way is to understand that those feelings are speaking to something that's true. Um, those emotions need to be disciplined by God's word and by um, what we'll see in a moment with Jesus, by Jesus' own character. But the desire for justice is not wrong. Right? And Jesus is not afraid to awaken those desires. But right before he comes in to take over the temple and prophesy against his leaders, you'll notice we skipped this passage, um, he's, he pauses and he's just outside the city. In verse 41, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. All right? Jesus, the humble donkey rider, as we've seen, the merciful healer, now the zealous, passionate defender of Israel, the severe prophet, the king who's going to return in judgment, he stops and he breaks down in tears. He weeps about the destruction that's coming to Jerusalem. He's warned them that of what's going to happen if they insist on continuing in their ways. He's given them a chance after chance to turn away from this path. Um, he'll give them another chance even after they kill him. Right, to respond to the words of the Spirit through the apostles. But Jesus knows that they are not going to listen. And he knows that in 40 years, in one generation, the Romans will react to a Jewish revolt and they will enact this ruthless siege on Jerusalem, bringing all the horrors of war onto the city. And Jesus says, weeping, if you only knew what would lead to peace, if you only would receive the Prince of Peace, if you would only recognize that your God is returning to his temple, that your king is here. And though Jesus will return as judge, though he doesn't, he doesn't hesitate to condemn unrepentant evil and warn of God's justice, he doesn't do that callously or kind of sadistically. Right? He doesn't gloat or revel in the destruction. In Ezekiel 8, God says, or Ezekiel 18, God says, do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? Why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the Lord God. So turn and live. Jesus cries twice in the Bible. Um, when his friend Lazarus dies, and then when he thinks of the death of the people who are rejecting him as king. He loves his people too much to let them destroy the world, destroy his children, destroy themselves. He loves too much to just casually dismiss evil. But he's not a cold and a distant God, even when it comes to his enemies. He weeps. Do we weep at the destruction of the wicked? When we see God's enemies 
Do we love them? Do we pray for them? Cry for them? Not dismiss what they've done, but do, we, do you weep for them? Right? When you see your enemy, whether that's a personal enemy or some large kind of societal figure of evil, um, when you see them kind of get what they deserve, so to speak, do you weep with Jesus? And what we're going to see in the final chapters of Luke is a God who, who's not going to hold punches. Jesus is not going to pull back. He's going to speak with total clarity about the stakes that are involved. He's not going to hesitate to level the kind of charges against Israel that will basically drive them insane with anger and fill their hearts with murder. But before he is the judge, he's a humble king on a donkey who weeps over his people. And this humility and this love for enemies is going to lead him ultimately to give up his own life, to give life to the worst of sinners. So in this passage, um, we see the king returning to his kingdom. But the way this kingdom comes will be surprising and it will be challenging, even to the people closest to him, who he's told over and over again. Right? We're on the other side of this. We know that um, Jesus first descends before he ascends to the throne. He goes to the throne by way of the cross. He bears the curse. He enters death to deal with the heart of our problem. So now our calling is to recognize, to submit to, and worship this king, even repent of our treason, and become like him, become like the king. Using his resources faithfully, and through tears, preaching the gospel to other lost rebels in our world that maybe are just like we were. And that's our calling. And that's the great task that we have as Christians and as a church. Let's pray. God, we're, we're sobered by um, these words of Jesus as he confronts a stubborn and unwilling people. God, I ask that you would be working, especially in our hearts as we grapple with these, with these words and with these truths, that you would show us what it looks like to bring together justice and mercy. That you would show us what it looks like to follow Jesus in speaking truth to what is wrong, but doing so in a way that is full of mercy and compassion. And God, I ask that you would help us as we each have our own resources, um, as we as a church have resources, that we would be faithful with those, that we would follow you, um, and that we would follow the example of Christ as he is going to his death to give life to others. In Jesus' name, amen.